The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello there, everyone. Uh, welcome to uh, Voyage 8 of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, I just read an article uh, this week that says that most starter podcasts don't even make it to episode 10. Well, here we are at 8, and we've got 9 and 10 scripted. So we're ahead of the game. Uh, we're eventually going to dominate the world. But you got to start somewhere, and it's right here in Curmudgeon Land. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, with me, uh, per the usual, is Arturo Andrade, who was our uh, main creative uh, force, our curator, and uh, just a all-around swell, interesting curmudgeon model. He's 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 my curmudgeon role model, and he should be yours. So, what's going on? Good. Uh, I'm still struggling with allergies as I was last week. I can't wait for summer to come. But aside from that, uh, the the other the only good thing about spring is baseball has started, and uh, for the first time in a long time, I'm actually excited about my favorite team. The New York Mets might actually be good this year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, well, the, the the most interesting Mets news of the week is that Bernie Madoff died. Yes, uh, the, the, uh, the the man that ruined Fred Wilpon. So, <laughs> so interesting week for me, dude. Uh, so uh, I'm getting married in ten days. Yeah, uh, and uh, this episode. Congratulations! Will, thank you. This episode <laughs> will hit the street before then, I promise. Uh, but it's been an interesting week because uh, about a week ago today, uh, you know, I, you know, being the curmudgeon, I spent way too much time researching what should be our first dance song. Uh, and, uh, one, I never, we had two finalists, uh, one, I would have never, ever in a million years thought of as a wedding song. Uh, and that was band of horses. Uh, no one's going to love you. Great song. Yeah. Which is just an amazing song. Uh, and it didn't occur to me and, uh, it just, I mean, uh, in a future, uh, episode, uh, our vault section will, will focus on, uh, uh, that record from Oh seven, which yeah, is just great album. Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, 10 songs, it's their, it's their best. It's their best album. I'm, I'm a fan of that band too. That's their best yeah. album to this it, day. It, so. It's a, a preview. Uh, it's basically perfect. Yeah. Uh, 10 songs, 34 minutes, but anyway, so there was that. And then another song that just popped into my head just randomly, but turned out to be perfect, which is you are the sunshine of my life. By Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, naturally, it's not as explicit as Isn't She Lovely, but apparently it's another song to a baby. But yeah. uh, but it has general application and is one of the greatest uh, uh, pop R&B songs I think ever written. Uh, but and here's the strange thing. So I did all this research and I, I read about 50 different blog articles and there were probably a total of about 400 songs listed for mm -hmm. first dance recommendations from all yeah. these like wedding blogs and, and punk blogs and all this, that song was not mentioned once. Mm -hmm. And you would think that that would be a staple. Uh, but it turns out signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours for an up-tempo dance song is, is way more popular. And my yeah. Sharia Moore 
right. is way more popular. Uh, right. So for some reason, we're going to be original, uh, according to the internet. Uh, <laughs> and we're going to dance on the altar because COVID has uh, forced us to not have a reception. So we're going to dance to You Are the Sunshine of My Life in front of a wooden cross, which is a little perverse. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you think about it. Welcome to the Parallel Universe. Yes. Uh, this is where we uh, take a uh, deep dive uh, into albums that, if the world made any sense, uh, would still have these albums revered and 50,000 people in stadiums, and uh, there would just be uh, mirth and joy and merriment, and all would be right with the world. But hell, we're in 2021, and uh, uh, people are listening to Ed fucking Sheeran. So on that note, what <laughs> yeah. do you got, Artie? Well, um, file this under certainly and most definitely better than Ed Sheeran. <laughs> they, these guys come from the same country, I believe. And this band is, uh, this, this is the latest album by one of my favorite bands of the last eight to 10 years. The name of that band is Slayford Mods. Now, calling these guys a band is a bit of a stretch because they're really a two-person, working-class, socio-political art project. <laughs> uh, they consist of two people, Andrew Fern on laptop computer. You heard that right. On stage, he just stands there pressing keys. And Jason Williamson on vocals that aren't quite singing and aren't quite rapping either. You know, um, uh, Their sound, especially on their earlier albums, consisted mainly of these super-minimalist electro-funk beats with Williamson in his very thick British East Midlands accent, ranting in seemingly stream of consciousness, although he does indeed write out his lyrics, and attacking various so social and political targets, usually of the right wing and vapid consumerist variety. Um, and this new album of theirs is called Spare Ribs. And uh, it's, like all their other albums, <laughs> really freaking good. Um, and on this album, like all previous uh, Slayford Mods records, to describe Williamson, um, who's really the star of this band, um, he comes across as like the middle point between the Falls, Mark E. Smith, and the Happy Mondays, Sean Ryder. <laughs> That's pretty much what he sounds like. And uh, while the dumbing down of society and people's obsession with losing themselves down the social media wormhole draw quite a lot of Williamson's ire, Throughout the mod's discography, their lyrical themes have consistently been the following. One, the Tory party's increasingly right-wing bent in the past couple of decades, mirroring America's Republican Party, no surprise, and their attempts to subvert democracy and strip away programs that benefit the public, like the NHS. And number two, how the ruling elite corporate superclass, via both mass and social media, have succeeded in brainwashing poor and working-class people particularly of the undereducated variety, into caring more about and looking after rich people's money than their own. 
Um, this is a problem we actually have in America as well. So in other words, it's a variation of the trickle-down economic scam that is one of the many negative legacies of the Ronald Reagan era. But anyway, back to the music. Um, the previous couple of Slaford Mods albums saw them experimenting with their sound a little bit, you know, introducing elements of dub reggae and, God forbid, actual singing and melodies. Uh, on Spare Ribs, their new album, they reach back to their original classic minimalist grind and while that may seem regressive and recycled in the mods hands and especially with you know williams williamson's bile directed at a post-brexit post-trump world it manages to sound fresh and vital you know um key tracks nudge it featuring amy taylor lead singer of one of this podcast's favorite bands amel and the sniffers and the title track which has probably the best funk groove of any track any song released this this year so far. So if Muse are the spir spiritual successors to Queen, then Slayford Mods are the spiritual successors to The Clash. They aren't the biggest band in the world, but they're one of the best and arguably the most important band in the world right now. So uh, let us take a foray into grime for middle-aged English men. Uh, mm -hmm. Literally. Yeah, uh, grime as a lot of you uh, around our age and maybe into your 30s will remember uh, became a big deal in about 2002 and 2003. This was the British uh, rap scene, and this was the organic British rap scene. So this was not ripoffs of the Wu Tang Clan or uh, ripoffs of Run DMC or anything like that. This was an organic streets of London and the surrounding areas hip hop. Obviously, the stars of that were The Streets and Dizzy Rascal. But there was a whole scene of these guys, of these minor players, that got a little bit of a cult following. Uh, and lo and behold, uh, at least one guy has survived to tell the tale and somehow found his way onto a major label uh, in the last year. Uh, we're talking about Getz. Uh, think ghetto, but then take the O off and put an S on it. Uh, this is a guy named Justin Clark, who's from uh, London. Uh, he's got roots from Jamaica and Granada. And uh, his new album is called Conflicts of Interest. Now, uh, really interesting stuff here, because like I said, uh, Getz has his roots in the Caribbean. And so his rhyming style is an odd mix of dancehall toasting and very much mirroring the Dizzy Rascal uh, flow and uh, cadence with this almost spitting of the lyrics. Now, granted, uh, Getz doesn't do the Daffy Duck shtick that uh, Dizzy <laughs> Rascal did. Uh, but And so his voice is he's very compelling. Uh, he's, there's a swagger to it, but also a uh, solemnity to it. And uh, this record, like I said, is uh, Grind for Middle-Aged Men. And uh, really interesting musically, uh, where it has these really sharp, uh, in-your-face, uh, clapping, uh, almost uh, clapping beats, really strong uh, drum programming. But it's surrounded by really ethereal, uh, either strings or keys or piano or uh, some of these other uh, horns in a couple of instances but very echoey. Uh, think uh, Fuji's 
their mm -hmm. score album has a lot of this kind of thing going on. And so that's a callback to, uh, to that record, which was Haitian. So go figure, uh, Caribbean rappers. But it's a lot of slow and mid-tempo songs that, to the point where it's so uh, mesmerizing in a few spots, it's almost psychedelic. And so it's this spoken word, autobiographical, reflective, uh, very clever uh, uh, record, you know, still with Odes to the Street. And again, you know, Getz is now 36 or 37. And so that's about the, the age where I started to slow down and kind of start yeah. a, a second life right. uh, where you look back 20 years ago and say, Jesus, was I that was I that person? And yeah. I think that uh, Getz is sort of going through that on uh, on this uh, highlights of the record, uh, the song Mozambique, uh, which is not necessarily political, but it, it, it harkens back to his, uh, to his street, uh, roots and really nasty flow. Uh, he's got a little bit of the Dr. Dre chronic style keyboard looping going on, uh, really ethereal shit in the background. It starts with this grand, uh, string, uh, intro. And then it goes into this, like, it's almost like a clap with a, uh, with an echoing. It's kind of spooky actually. In a way, um, fans of trap uh, music, the Chief Keef mm. uh, shit yeah. and all that will kind of see a lot of uh, similarities there, which ought to tell you something. It really kind of started with grime. Uh, yeah. So, and then the other one I would recommend is Autobiography, which is a seven minute long song that doesn't really have a verse chorus verse structure. It's got, it's basically got a chorus, but it's almost like a poem, uh, like a repeatable uh, yeah. spot, um, uh, there, but it goes on for seven minutes and there's a really cool gimmick in the middle of it. Again, this is also very woozy and almost psychedelic. And basically yeah. it makes you wonder if he, uh, improv this because at four minutes and 48 seconds, here comes the lyric four forty-eight, and I ain't finished yet. And so I don't think I've ever seen or heard that. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, in freestyle rap, there's a lot of uh, tradition of making, uh, m you know, marking the moment and either uh, looking at uh, or making reference to the body language of opponent and, and those types of things. But I don't think I've ever heard anybody reference the, the time clock like that. <laughs> uh, and so either it's a really clever feat of editing and overdubbing or the guy is just riffing and putting that in there. And so really cool. And ironically enough, by the way, I was ragging on Ed Sheeran. Uh, the worst song on this record is one called 10,000 Tears with a guest appearance by Ed Sheeran. And, uh, and I <laughs> guess- mother, you know, that, that motherfucker is ubiquitous. <laughs> yeah, he, he really is. Uh, coincidentally, when I was talking about first wedding songs about like the top five most popular ones are Ed Sheeran. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess this is your, the price to pay when you get on a major label. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and it's also gets his first, oh, it's a four-way, uh, four-way, uh, uh, a four-way <laughs> into auto-tune uh, auto vocals. So purposely mm -hmm. melodic. But now let's get into the theme of this episode, which we're going to have a lot of fun with. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll only say one introductory uh, term and then yeah. turn this over to Arturo for setup. Yeah. 1974. That's right. 
Now, the reason we talking about the year 1974, the year before Chris and I were both born, by the way, there is a website called rebeatmag.com. Um, Rebeat, and I'm quoting from their website, is a, quote, digital blog slash magazine primarily dedicated to mid-century music, pop culture, and lifestyle. We say primarily because the category is so broad and the mid-20th century influence is felt in waves rippling through time. So basically, it's all things music and pop culture of the middle of the 20th century, all things 1960s and 70s, really. And two years ago on this website slash blog, um, a music writer and author named Rick Simmons published an article, very tongue-in-cheek, very humorous, uh, claiming that 1974 was the worst year in music history. And he did so by doing a week-by-week listing of all the number one hit songs of that year and describing each song in detail. Now, while obviously a very humorous article and done totally tongue-in-cheek, and I appreciate that. Um, however, he really does believe 1974 sucked, and it comes and it comes across through the humor. So in this episode, Chris and I are going to debunk, disprove, and overall destroy this ridiculous premise by presenting 10 reasons why 19, 1974 did not in any way suck. In fact, it was a pretty great year for rock as well as being a year that the two dominant musical forces of the 1970s, punk and disco, started to germinate. So really, if you go by the pop chart hits, yeah, 1974 wasn't that great. But if you look outside of that, my God, a lot of great music was going on. And I can give a big shout out to uh, Todd in the Shadows and his YouTube series, One Hit Wonderland. Um, we were alerted to a Rick Simmons 1974 article after watching Todd's episode on Carl Douglas's Kung Fu fighting. Uh, if, if, you, if you guys haven't watched it, go watch Todd in the shadows on YouTube. Uh, one hit Wonderland is a great, great series, uh, you made for YouTube series in which uh, he goes through one hit wonders throughout the decades and examines the song and how it was recorded and the impact it had and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, uh, he had a great episode on Carl Douglas's Kung Fu Fighting, which was released in 1974. And Todd references this article. So, and that led me to think, hmm, there's a, there's a curmudgeonly episode here. And Yes, there, yes, there is. And, he, and you're listening to it now. <laughs> yes. And, and the funny part is it's not really an unironic uh, segue for yeah. it to be, or trigger for it to be uh, Kung Fu Fighting. Yeah. Because even as Rick Simmons in this article that we're pointing out, uh, which coincidentally uh, on our YouTube channel, we'll, we'll link uh, to this, but it's uh, rebeatmag.com. And then I believe if you do a search and pull up Rick Simmons in 1975, uh, four, you can find it. But even he points out at the end of this that, hey, you know, Carl Douglas sold 11 million singles. So maybe it wasn't all uh, for naught. Uh, so, but anyway, this, this article is fabulously lazy. And if you went by it, you, you know, they make some pretty good points because it, you know, having thought about this and, you know, Homer Simpson has a famous line in the Simpsons where he says that this is sort of uh, the beginning of rock and roll and it's a scientific fact. And, <laughs> you know, the late, the more we, we've researched this, it's pretty much true. But this article, uh, it's really funny because he, 
starts it in a way where you would think, yeah, you know, he's got a good point. He uh, he lists the four biggest number one hits on Billboard of 1974, which are The Way We Were by Barbara Streisand, <laughs> Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks, The Streak by Ray Stevens, and You're Having My Baby by Paul Anka. <laughs> now, if you just stopped reading there, uh, you would have enough proof that maybe it was a shitty year. Now, uh, I think for what it's worth, uh, bagging on the streak is just not a good idea in my world. That's that's a great song. It's a fun song. I like it too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then and then when you look at it, and then of course the sixth song you mentioned is uh, Grand Funk Railroad's uh, cover of the Locomotion. <laughs> which that's is terrible. A, yeah, that's terrible. Which is which is another funny one. So it's like I said, it, it's a run through of these songs. The first number one song that year was uh, Jim Croce's "Time in a Bottle." You know, he I mean, Croce was dead by then, but he had the first number one hit in 1974. So that that's besides the point. But here's why we're uh, doing this. Uh, the more we thought about it, and if you really dive into it, uh, that really is a seminal year for pop culture in terms of music. As Arturo mentioned, that it's uh, a great year for punk and disco. And as we'll get into it, it's also a great year well, for singer-songwriters. The dawn, the dawn of punk and disco. Really. Yeah, the dawn of punk and disco. It's, you know, not really the birth, but the dawn. I mean, it yeah. you know, maybe it was birthed a couple of years earlier. But yeah. the other thing to mention, and we'll get into this at a couple of points in the episode, it was also an amazing year for singer-songwriters that it took about 10 or 11 years for people to acknowledge were pretty great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and so they completely were ignored in 1974, but now here we are in uh, rock nerdville in 2021, and dudes our age and even a little bit younger are like you know, they revere these records. So, yeah. And then one thing I wanted to share before we we get going, uh, there's a, a comment in the comment string in this Rick Simmons article that's wonderful and will <laughs> help set us up. And so let me read this, uh, quote unquote: 1974 was the year Rush was born. Your argument <laughs> is null and void. 1974 was also the year Bon Scott joined ACDC, and furthermore, Judas Priest was born. ELO releases El Dorado, Supertramp releases Crime of the Century, King Crimson releases Red, Jethro Tull releases War Child, Kiss releases their debut, probably their best album, and follows it up with Hotter Than Hell before year's end. The Scorpions release their RCA debut, Fly to the Rainbow, amazing Ew. album. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Queen releases Sheer Heart Attack, their big breakthrough. Okay. Genesis releases their prog rock magnum opus, The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Which the would shit be their, lies down on Broadway. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which would be their final album with Peter Gabriel at the helm. I suppose that one is bittersweet. Need I go on? Uh, actually, yes, you, you, you may need to go on because we're... Uh, let's just put it this way. Uh, 1974 was such a, uh, a rich year. We're not even covering prog rock in our, in our list. The abuse of prescription and medical drugs is a staggering crisis. Propofol killed Michael Jackson. Fentanyl killed Prince. This is tragic, but it's not a tragic waste, because each artist left an extraordinary legacy through their work. I'm a Michael guy. Arturo is a Prince guy. Just as I think Prince never did an album as good as Off the Wall, Arturo thinks Michael never did a single as good as Kiss. Are you with Michael? Or are you with Prince? Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com today. Welcome back to 1974 in 2021. And so we'll begin our deep, deep dive into the best 
points of 1974 to prove that it wasn't a year that sucked. It did not suck. And to, in my mind, was possibly the best year in the 70s, maybe for American music, although 1979 is up there. On that note, Arturo, what do you got? All right. Well, reason number 10 why 1974 did not suck. It is David Bowie and not so much his Diamond Dogs album, which is very good, by the way, but it's the Diamond Dogs tour why uh, uh, that is really special. Now, this tour and all three legs of it in North America was the biggest and most ambitious tour Bowie had done yet. And it was the one that brought him to the level of arena rock. Now, this is one of the most fascinating eras of Bowie's career, and he's had many fascinating eras. It found him right after the glam rock apotheosis of the Ziggy Stardust persona and right before his plastic soul, thin white Duke period of young Americans and station to station. Now, like I said, while the Diamond Dogs album itself is terrific, Rebel Rebel was the big hit single off of it. This was the tour, this tour broke new ground in how conceptual art rock can have an accompanying stage show that matches the music in complexity, ambition, and sweeping narrative scope. Um, Basically, it took Alice Cooper's horror show innovations of the early 1970s and took it to art school. The result was, and keeping in line with the narrative of the Diamond Dogs album, it's a stage show that told the story of a dystopian future in an urban setting where a right-wing fascist society prevailed and a burgeoning underground movement of punks and street urchins rise to attempt to topple the social order. Uh, Yeah, yes, Bowie was already predicting punk rock by this point. Um, The stage set, uh, the stage was set to resemble a city and had a variety of moving props, such as street lamps, chairs, ramps, bridges, and catwalks. Um, Various moments of the show would have Bowie singing from these spots, pushing the narrative along. Um, Other props included multi-mirrored glass asylums with Bowie singing on top of them, a giant hand covered in small light bulbs with Bowie sitting and singing on top of it. Um, Ironically enough, the most iconic moment of this show was the least involved stage prop. And you can see this in the 1974 documentary Cracked Actor uh, that followed Bowie on tour uh, for this tour. And, and, and the iconic moment of the show is Bowie holding a human skull in his hand and singing to it, evoking that famous scene from Shakespeare's Hamlet. <laughs> you know, um, th- That's the most iconic moment of, 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 the, of the tour. Yeah. Did, Neither- did, did we mention that this might have been the year where uh, cocaine took off? Oh, yeah. (laughs) No shit. Needless to say, the cost of such an endeavor was a little too much to sustain. Um, The cost for each show was about $275,000 per night, which was a lot of money for 1974. As a result, Bowie continued the second leg of the tour without all the stage props and put on a much more stripped down, streamlined stage act. Nevertheless, The mammoth size of the tour and the high concept ambition was a testament 
to the old saying, it's the thought that counts. <laughs> and there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got you. Uh, yeah, yeah it, it, it's an interesting uh, period because, uh, as Arturo mentioned, uh, this he comes out of the gate with this tour after the Ziggy Stardust tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and so yeah. he's not he's not playing with Mick Ronson anymore. And so, right. look, oh, let, let's see. We've done we've done Ziggy Stardust and Spider from Mars, which, you know, was uh, memorialized in the D.A. Pennebaker film at the end of the decade. And so th- then it's like Bowie's like, oh, how can we top that? <laughs> and then he actually goes and tops that. Uh, and, 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 and and he thinks that in between snorting massive lines of cocaine. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, again, you have to remember, like Diamond Dogs is a fabulous record. I think it, it's yeah. it's one of my favorite Bowie records, but uh, it it's in an interesting spot because it's uh, right in between, and this is in between uh, the the Ziggy Hunky Dory uh, uh, period, uh, and uh, you know that stuff, and then right after it it's you know speaking of cocaine station to station that the album is so good but we doesn't remember any of it actually uh, young, young americans came before young Americans. Right, yeah but, but it was like sort of the beginning of that period like you said the uh, the white soul and yeah. uh you know all the background singer stuff and the yeah. the, re- the really kind of fabulous uh, pseudo r&b but again it's it's the stuff that's so good but we can't remember any of it uh <laughs> so it's an interesting transitional phase. And uh, speaking and speaking of over-the-top, ridiculous theatrical rock. Number nine. Uh, <laughs> since we just mentioned, uh, these guys shared a stage designer. Uh, this is the uh, birth of Kiss. Yep. And, and Kiss has an interesting year here because they... It's their first a, year. <laughs> yeah, well, it's their first year, you know, making records. But, you know, they had been a club band. Uh, yeah. They started in the New York City area. Yeah. Uh, and... So here's an interesting thought. Imagine Kiss in the makeup doing doing the show in like 50 person clubs in Queens. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that. But anyway, this so this is Kiss's Dawn. And I believe was it two or three records or they had three records to come out there. Two. They had it was two. They it was two the, studio albums in 74. Yeah, yeah, it was Kiss and Hotter Than Hell, right? Right. Yeah. Right. And so they have these two albums that are both really good yeah. uh, that have, you know, Deuce and Strutter and, you know, Hotter Than Hell, 100,000 Years, all that stuff. Uh, but they didn't sell worth a, a damn. And yeah. not only that, you didn't really get a sense of what they were capable live because their live shows are these crazy over the top. You know, they, they've got the face paint and they're dressed like, you know, they have cats and demons and Starmans and they're, 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 uh, they're basically. They're basically dressed like Doctor Strange supervillains. <laughs> yeah, basically, it's 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 Kabuki theater come to America. Oh, hey, with pyro, uh, and so you, who I don't know who thought of this because obviously Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons, it's their band, but they're the two that weren't on drugs. Yeah, and they came up with this, and it's again, it's a fabulous year. So they have their these two records and the third one that didn't sell. And they weren't really capturing the live experience. And then when once they finally uh, captured the live experience in uh, in a live album, which we covered a few weeks back, yeah. uh, Kiss Alive One, then they blew up. And so, but this is the beginning of it. And Ace Freely and Peter Chris, uh, basically the kids that grew up in that era, uh, that were about thirteen or even six, uh, that influenced the whole generation of not only the theatrical 
rock and the, especially an interesting thing. If you, if you look at kiss, there's a direct line to like kiss and like iron maiden and Judas priest. Absolutely. So, for, yeah. so, so for some reason, the, uh, you know, the androgynous British guys, uh, loved kiss, uh, yeah. go figure, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah. And so we have to mark, we have to mark this because, uh, Kiss came up with something so special that they could play clubs, get on a major label. Uh, Black Sabbath and Savoy Brown both hated Kiss because they Kiss opened for both of them. And stole and their audience. Yeah, basically yeah. stole their audience. And so, yeah, it's yeah. like one of these things. Imagine having to follow Kiss, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're like some stodgy blues guy from London. It's like, hey, yeah. look at how I can play. Oh, yeah. fuck that. Give, give me pyro and... Uh, Paul Stanley, you know, yeah, shouting like a little bitch, you know. Rock and roll all night. Yeah, y'all want to get high? <laughs> yep. So, yeah, those yeah. are those are the worst impressions of Paul Stanley of all time, uh, memorialized for all time here in podcast. How many of you people out there like to drink some alcohol? Woohoo! Yeah. 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 And so I'm telling you, I mean, well, the thing about Kisses Alive One is it has the best audience track in all of. Uh, live album is and, if, and like I said that it's the most stitched together overdubbed live album ever but they did a really great job of collecting the greatest hits of audience response and so <laughs> yeah. and again it all starts here this theatrical uh, over the top metal uh, thing and really if you think about it without Kiss you might not get Spinal Tap nope so, that, that's true <laughs> this, is, this, this is the beginning of the road and Kiss, like Kiss, Kiss glorified in cliche. They loved it. <laughs> yes, 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 they did. Unapologetic. And, well, but the thing about it is they didn't necessarily glorify in cliche. They invented the cliches in a lot they of did. ways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, they Americanized the cliches because a lot of it, again, is just sort of based on Japanese monster movie kind of stuff. Yeah, right. And uh, the kind of theater and even Broadway, because I know Paul Stanley is a Broadway guy and this sort of over-the-top yeah. Jesus Christ superstar type of theater. There's a lot of that in the Kiss stuff, too. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So that that needs to be mentioned. Or hair. Uh, yeah. So uh, big, big influences uh, on them. So, and like I said, the two sober guys conceptualized right. Kiss, not the two guys on drugs. So <laughs> that, that fascinates me. Uh, and, any thoughts on that, Arturo? You know, Kiss is one of those bands that it took me a really long time to appreciate. Um, I, my joke was always, oh, what's Kiss spelled backwards? Sick. That's how they make me feel. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that, that, was, that was my joke for years. But you know what? Just just only a few years ago, you know, one of my good friends here in Korea, he's a big Kiss fan. And uh, he, he really like pleaded with me, dude, just listen to the live album. Listen to Kiss Alive. And I did for the first time. And then it clicked. It made sense. Like, oh, this is what it's about. Okay, I get it now. And then I went back and listened to their studio albums. And, and, and the early early 70s Kiss is solid. That's some good stuff. It's from after 1979 is when they started, when they really went down the shitter, though. <laughs> I mean, seriously, once, once, once they took their makeup off, it was over. And so now we will go from one extreme to the other, literally. Yes. Yeah, and really. <laughs> we're, we're, we're now going from Kiss to... Uh, who, Arturo? Number eight reason why 1974 did not suck. Joni Mitchell begins her jazz pop rock period. Now, up to this point, Mitchell's musical output could be generally categorized as alternating between two points. 
high-pitched falsetto vocals with gentle acoustic guitar accompaniment and high-pitched falsetto vocals with gentle acoustic piano accompaniment. Now, while that may seem like I'm being derisive, I'm not. (laughs) I'd like to make it known that her 1971 album, Blue, is one of the greatest recordings of popular music ever made. It's the only album from that early period of hers where everything about her early shtick coalesced into this haunting set of poetic, heart-wrenching, and emotionally resonant music. Coincidentally, number three on uh, Rolling Stone's updated 500 greatest albums of all time. Yeah, yeah. And had she retired at this point, she would always have blue in her pocket and she would always be remembered forever for it. That being said, by 1973, that shtick had grown old and she knew it. And as a result, she embarked on a run of albums starting with the brilliant Court and Spark in 1974 that uh, reinvented and significantly expanded her sound to include, over the next four years, rock, pop, jazz, blues, classical, Latin music, and even African rhythms. Her lyrical scope broadened as well, and this is pretty important. Her her patented first-person confessional quasi-diary journal entry lyrics, they remained but she started to embark on observational character vignettes that bordered on short stories, a la Ray Davies, you know. But, of course, the West Coast, California, Laurel Canyon version of Ray Davies, right? <laughs> you know, um, her eye for detail got better as she became less introspective and a little more engaged with other people's feelings and thoughts in her songs. And unlike many other others classified into the sensitive singer-songwriter niche, Mitchell was able to transcend that by getting over her solipsism. Now, this new approach of lyricism shows its head very prominently on Court and Spark, which for the most part works as a song suite about the decadent and bohemian lifestyle of Los Angeles at the time, LA at the time, from the perspective of high class and rich society in their living in their ivory towers. By contrast, her follow-up to Court and Spark the hissing of summer lawns from 1975 would do the same, but from the perspective of the bowels of the low class, trashy LA nightclub and bar scene. So what this does is it shows a thematic scope that serves as an indisposable cultural postcard from one of the most enduringly fascinating eras and periods in rock history. So yeah, court and spark is the album that started Mitchell's most interesting period musically And it's also by far her second best album and deserves to be on anyone's list of the greatest albums ever made. No, I, yeah, hard to disagree. Uh, Here's the thing with Joni Mitchell. Uh, She's one of those people that, you know, we talked about a couple of episodes ago, the last waltz. And it was, you know, we said it was uh, a really good time being had by a lot of people having uh, bad times uh, in their lives. But in Joni Mitchell's case, again, she was one of the few people that was able to make a pivot that, you know, all these folks started to fall off the charts and go into irrelevance or drug induced hazes or what have you. All these folks from the, the well, from Summer of Love to Woodstock and, you know, 67, 70, all these people that got big on this sort of folkish rock from, you know, the Canadians obviously yeah. had, had, had a good streak. But she was, you know, like she said, she was able to reinvent herself. And imagine this, it was her most commercially successful record uh yeah. even even more popular at the time it came out than blue 
and uh, it wasn't able to get the number one on Bill uh, on Billboard because of some of the other records that uh, a couple of which will well we've mentioned you know the way we were in John Denver, but uh, but it also uh, strangely enough it won uh, the Grammy for Record of the Year for Help Me. And yeah. so, I mean, this is like the, the big pop single. This is like kind of the uh, American Music Award award of the Grammys. And yeah. Joni Mitchell won Record of the Year at one point. Strange but true. Uh, and let me just share one great quote uh, from an interview that Stevie Nicks did with Q in mm. uh, 2008. And she recalled that she took acid to this record, which wow. to me is kind of wild. And she yeah. says, uh, I was with my producer at his house with a set of speakers that were taller than the fireplace. And I was in a safe place. And I sat there on the floor and listened to that record. Uh, that was a pretty dynamic experience. No uh, shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That, you know, that's, uh, you know, Stevie Nicks, who, you know, obviously had a shtick of her own. That's understated Stevie Nicks, which I didn't know existed. I, and now we drag this back to theatrical macho rock that really isn't that macho if you know who the lead singer is. Number seven reason why 1974 did not suck. Chris? <laughs> yeah, I think that setup kind of gave it away. Queen. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Queen is one of my favorite bands of all time. And Mine I too. think Art Arturo can say the same thing. Yeah. And uh, Queen is what happens when you combine uh, a very serious, yeah. uh, thoughtful, uh, brilliant technician who later in life became a PhD in astrophysics yeah. with a flamingly gay, uh, theatric, uh, natural born song and dance performer, uh, Freddie Mercury. So that's what, so you take Brian with, May with, with, with charisma to boot. <laughs> yeah. With, with like an enormous amount of charisma and at least Brian May had the hair. Uh, so there's that. So you get this, the, the kind of the best of both worlds in one band and yeah. look, they could have chosen Freddie Mercury was so talented. They could have chosen to play it straight and be more like a Fleetwood Mac or a, an ELO, yeah. but they went for this amazing hybrid of early proto metal, uh, that sort of theatrical, uh, stage, uh, uh, rock, uh, some opera and some classical, and they put it all together in this just rumbling force of nature. It's, 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 I almost picture like a tidal wave in lace, uh, or, or almost like yeah. a, it's like a Godzilla movie in high heels. Yeah. Uh, and so it, good ways to visualize queen. And so they broke out this year, uh, with sheer heart attack. Uh, right. which I hadn't heard in a long time. And so researching this record uh, was, uh, and researching for this episode and listening to it again was such a trip. Uh, yeah. Stone Cold Crazy uh, on the same album with Flick of the Wrist, uh, which, mm -hmm. yep. you know, and uh, Now I'm Here, uh, which after Freddie died, uh, trivial note, it was Def Leppard that covered Now I'm Here, which oh, actually, really? which proved how awesome, uh, a proto metal song that was because Def Leppard did it pretty well. <laughs> you know, I mean, say, you know, hate on Def Leppard all you want, but uh, even they can knock now I'm here out of the park. 
And so, and then Killer Queen is on that too, which is one of their most famous songs. And so there's actually, a- that's the song that broke them in America. That was a top oh, yeah. 20 hit. Yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah, no, that, yeah, that, that, people think of that at the opera, but really sheer heart attack is what broke them uh, really in yeah, America. No, absolutely. And and that's what I was going to say. And so here you have this this monumentally rocking ass album with you know all of that great playing by May and all of those overdubbed uh, background vocals and all that grandeur and just awesomely metal stuff. Made and, for stadium rock, made for stadiums. <laughs> yes, and, you know, absolutely stone cold made for stadiums. Uh, but it 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 also now when we think of Queen, what are the couple, the first two things that we all think? Most of us think of. I'd say about eighty five percent of us. The the first couple of things we would rattle off are Bohemian Rhapsody, and then the We Will Rock You, and We Are the Champions. Another uh, one bites the dust. <laughs> yeah, and another one bites the dust, and, and crazy little thing called love. But yeah. no, here they're playing it straight it's about a straight arrow queen as they could they're just rocking balls for yeah this whole record and then of course the number one song is killer queen which is the campiest thing on it yeah uh, <laughs> and then you know well brighton rock is pretty campy too but in in a wonderful rocking ass over the yeah. top way right uh, and so without that you know rami malik wouldn't have his oscar uh we wouldn't yeah. have yeah you know, uh, Live Aid would probably not like seriously, Arthur. Do you remember yeah. anything else about Live Aid? No, I do know Madonna performed, but I'm kind of a Madonna fan, so there you yeah, go. <laughs> I, yeah, Madonna, yeah, Madonna performed in Philadelphia. Uh, Led Zeppelin played in Philadelphia with Jimmy Page, horribly out of tune, uh, with Phil Collins on drums. Yes, with Phil Collins on drums, uh, but. <laughs> Only we would remember that, but like the mainstream population, the only thing yeah. they remember is a whole stadium clapping their yeah. hands to Radio Goo Goo, Radio Gaga. Radio Goo Goo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but the entire stadium was, was yeah. clapping and singing the chorus along. And yeah, it's actually pretty amazing. I, of course, I like that song, but it's uh, an amazing spectacle. And then obviously uh, the, the movie brought back the image of him doing Bohemian Rhapsody on the piano, uh, which right. is. And that that mic, uh, yeah. the most iconic thing about that is that wireless mic. You know, almost looks like a dragon hornet. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, pretty or a sewing bee. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, yep. So that this is uh, Queen breaks out and makes one of the most more underappreciated hard rock records. I know it's weird to say that because Queen is so big, but Sheer Heart Attack, ridiculously underappreciated accomplishment. Yeah, I, I I don't have much to add to that because I've always felt Sheer Heart Attack is the underrated Queen album, like on in their in their uh, in their catalog. I mean, you, you always get any list of the greatest albums of all time will always have a Night at the Opera. When I release my list of the 500 greatest studio albums of all time, Sheer Heart Attack will be on there for sure. Yeah, mine too. And uh, yeah. for what it's worth, a uh, uh, a Night at the Opera and a Day at the Races too. Uh, a day at the race is maybe not 500, but it's 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 a great record. Yeah, uh, but but this is this is their best record. I I I really think that. And so uh, so sorry, Rick Simmons. Any any year with your heart attack and it does not suck. Exactly, and this leads us to reason number six why 1974 did not suck. We go from the grandeur, over the top, the over the top grandeur of Queen to the bowels of forgotten underground geniuses. And we're talking about 
a band that was forgotten and ignored in its time, but is now seen as one of the seminal influences on American alternative and indie rock. And that is Big Star, both Big Star and Chris Bell, former co-leader of Big Star. And in this year, 1974, they record, each of them record under the radar masterpieces that would take years to be made available to the public in Chris Bell's uh, uh, sense, decades actually. So yes, Big Star and Chris Bell. Okay, and, and you know what? These guys are, are forever, you know, Chilton and Bell are forever joined at the hip. Alex Chilton, that is. Uh, they're always joined at the hip historically due to Chris Bell's early involvement in Chris Star and Big Star. <laughs> and uh, Chris Star. <laughs> I like that one. Um, anyway, there is a beautifully sad and poignant documentary called Big Star, Nothing Can Hurt Me from 2012 that tells the band's and Bell's story in great detail. But I'll do my best here to give a condensed version, especially as it relates to the two albums in question that, that were both recorded, not released, but recorded in 1974. Now, Alex Chilton and Chris Bell were the two guitar-playing, songwriting lead singers of Memphis band Big Star, who, with no sense of false modesty, named and released their astounding debut album, Number One Record, in 1972 on the legendary R&B and soul label Stax Records. Yeah, this is well, the this, this is the best accidental Korean karaoke joint uh, album name of all time. Yeah, exactly. You know, and Stax, of course, is known for its R&B. You know, it's a Memphis label known for releasing records by Otis Redding and and uh, no, uh, other, oh yeah, and, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Booker T, Booker T and the MGs, who were yeah. the stacks records. Uh, and back and uh, Isaac Hayes. And Isaac Hayes, of course. Now, the album was a dismal commercial failure, and it was due to several reasons. But the main two reasons were, number one, Stax had serious financial problems with their distributor at this point resulting in the album simply not being available in many record stores. And the simple fact that Big Star's brand of immaculately crafted power pop just wasn't in style back in the early 1970s. In fact, it wouldn't be until the early 1990s for Big Star to start getting their critical props when their style of music was seen as an obvious influence on the burgeoning indie and alternative rock music of the time. Now, Chris Bell took the commercial disappointment really hard and he quit the band. Chilton, however, already a veteran of the music business in his early 20s due to being a teenage pop star, albeit briefly, with the box tops back in the 1960s. They had their big hit, The Letter. He knew about the ebbs and flows of the industry and he kept the band going as a trio for a little longer. Radio City was released in early 1974 and was a musically more rough and ragged had had a more rough and ragged uh, angular sound. It was nonetheless brilliant with some of the strongest songwriting of Chilton's life, particularly the euphoric perfection of September Girls, one of the greatest songs ever recorded. Unfortunately, like the first album, it flopped and Chilton was ready to end the band. However, their contract with Stax required one more album and Chilton trudged on. At this time, Chilton was in a toxic, mutually abusive relationship, and he was deep into drug use. This, combined with his floundering career, fed into the songwriting and recording of an album in the fall of 1974 that is nearly unparalleled in its hybrid of 
disturbing anger, despair, and emotional angst with melodic beauty, perfectly constructed song craft, and sparse yet affecting arrangements. From the aching tenderness of the cover of Lou Reed's Femme Fatale to the biting irony of Thank You Friends to the narcotic wooziness of Big Black Car to the Baroque beauty of Stroke It Knoll, to the balls-to-the-wall rock of You Can't Have Me, the album that would end up being called Third is a masterpiece of depth and resonance that, along with the other two albums in Big Star's catalog, would end up being a touchstone influence on bands, artists such as R.E.M., Nirvana, Teenage Fan Club, Matthew Sweet, Pearl Jam, Oasis, and The Verve all of whom bands that we love, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, although promotional pressings of the album circulated around early 1975 Stax's financial situation at this point was in dire straits. And that combined with the band's disinterest in doing anything to promote the album, drug use and low morale were pretty prevalent at this point. And the album's overall lack of commercial sound meant it would remain unreleased until a small indie label called PVC records put it out in 1978. Meanwhile, from 1974 through early 75, Chris Bell was recording an album across three studios in both France and Memphis. Recorded with the intent of shopping it around to many major record labels as possible, not even one picked it up. As a result, Bell remained in Memphis, became a cook at a restaurant, only played music sporadically in pickup bands around town and died in a car accident at the age of 27. Yes, he's a member of the 27 Club. <laughs> However, with Big Star's reputation and um, their star, I guess, <laughs> shining brightly by the early 1990s, uh, Ryko Disc finally released the long overdue Chris Bell album called I Am the Cosmos in 1992. While a tiny indie label released a 45 single of the title track back in 78, to no commercial reaction, of course, um, an eager 1992 audience heard a collection of songs of shimmering, epic, mag majestic beauty that would have sat comfortably alongside anything from Big Star's rocking Radio City album or their dark haunting third. In fact, it really is amazing how Bell's songs seamlessly blend with and complement Chilton's, whether in the context of Big Star or outside of it. Uh, what's abundantly noticeable is that Bell, when he was in Big Star, was the sweetener to the band, his songs going down easier than Chilton's thorny, caustic compositions. You can really play a game of what if they were huge, with Bell being the McCartney to Chilton's Lennon, you know? Um, this album, you know, songs of unabashed loving and longing, such as I Am the Cosmos and You and Your Sister, recorded yeah. with Chilton, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say, the doing the backup vocals, yep. Implying that their lack of friendship was never a reason for Bell leaving Big Star. Um, those songs would sound trite and maudlin in anyone else's hands, but Bell sends it to the listener's gut with this cracked voice delivery and irresistible sensitivity. So, in a parallel universe, 1974, <laughs> yeah, exactly. where, Chris, where Chris Bell never left Big Star and they became a multi-platinum selling band, the end of that year would have seen a double album by Big Star containing the songs from Third and I Am the Cosmos. It would have sold a shitload of copies and critics would have hailed it as their white album. 
<laughs> yeah. The end. Yeah. But- special thanks. Special thanks to Rob Jovanovich and his excellent biography of Big Star called. Well, Big Star. <laughs> Big Star is one of the more fascinating stories uh, that they did all this great music and never really got any listeners outside of um, outside of Memphis for a long time. And then, like you said, this this grunge generation and this and REM generation came up, and they got this new attention. And uh, most people, in, including me. Uh, either got their introduction to or still know Big Star from On the Street, uh, mm-hmm. Cheap Tricks cover of that, which was that 70s show's uh, theme music. Yeah. Uh, yep. well, you know, and Oddly, really good version by an old-ass, washed-up Cheap Trick. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I agree with Arturo. Like, uh, all three of those records are, are brilliant. Uh, but yeah, September Girls is just this magical uh, pop song. Uh, with this wonderful uh, uh, melody uh, featured in it, and just and obviously Chilton could sing too. I mean, that, he, he's one of those rare talents that could that could do everything. But my personal favorite song in that whole thing is "You and Your Sister." Uh, mm. th- that is just an extraordinary uh, song, and the fact that he couldn't even get on a label until yeah. for, and it didn't even see the light of day for eighteen years. Yeah. I don't understand that. <laughs> Because it's yeah. it's perfect, it, it really yeah. is. It's it, it like you said. It's 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 dark, but it's dreamy. On this episode, we set the record straight on all the great music that came out in 1974. Next episode, Chris and I will get our hardcore curmudgeon on and take aim on all those bands who blew us away with great debut albums and spent the rest of their careers either in underwhelming mediocrity or in just a disappointing shower of shit. The curmudgeons go after the one and dunners on the next episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. All right, and now reason number five why 1974 did not suck. We go from one unrecognized genius in his time to this dude is probably the most recognized musical genius of his time. Chris, take it away. Yeah, and and before 1974, probably an overly recognized genius because he was (laughs) fucking around in his head for several years, and that's Bob Dylan. Uh, Bob Dylan had a fascinating 1974 and, uh, it led into uh, his revival period starting the next year, uh, officially and, uh, you know, revival. There you go. Uh, yeah, that's a pun, but (laughs) accidental pun. So 74, uh, Dylan is coming into this year and kind of like Joni Mitchell, this is a, uh, beginning of a remake uh, of Dylan. And it's interesting because it gets started as anything but a remake. It's he introduces he he came out with the album Planet Waves this year, which in a way is a peppier, uh, more full bodied version of John Wesley Harding. It's kind of like a cousin to John Mm -hmm. Wesley Harding in some ways, this sort of really underrated uh, country rockish record backed by the band. So uh, that's yeah. uh, that's one of those uh, things. And then they went on a tour. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago where yeah. uh, uh, before the flood comes out of that. Um, and so this is in a way it's it's Dylan having fun, but 
like he did on uh, Self Portrait, which is uh, one of the most unintentionally comical records of all time. Although <laughs> The Man in Me is great. Uh, and even Quindy Eskimo is not that bad. But Proof proves that even the shittiest Dylan album has at least one good track on it. Yeah. I mean, and actually, I think Rob Sheffield, I think, did a, a, a thing for Rolling Stone a while ago that uh, where he reviewed uh, Dylan's 80s catalog and defended it by saying you can find a masterpiece on all those crappy records. Uh, yeah. which is funny. So he's on his way back. Now, the second half of this year is, you know, Dylan, he had he's getting divorced and he's in this mode. He swears that the stuff from what became Blood on the Tracks the next year, which is probably one of the 10 greatest records of all time, yeah. uh, he swears it had nothing to do with his divorce and it was just riffing on some of his artistic influences uh, from the night. Bullshit. 1990s. Yeah, bullshit. <laughs> yeah, you can't do a song like You're a Big Girl Now if you're not, or Idiot, yeah. well, Idiot Wind. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, so... Yeah. He has a lot of he has a lot going on that year. Like I said, he's he's dabbling in his country rock. He's reuniting with the band. Who every time those guys work together, uh, it was at least really interesting and fascinating recordings. This also uh, sets up the basement tapes, which is seventy five as well. So right. Dylan has no 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 no. The basement tapes were recorded in sixty seven. Right. No, I know that, but it wasn't released oh, until okay. seventy five. So right, right, right. So right, so yeah. this sets up. A, the, yeah. the biggest celebration of Dylan and the band. Right. Uh, right. Okay. And so, yeah. so Dylan, he, you know, this is not a career defining year, but it sets up one of the yes. two or three defining career years for him. Yeah. And it's interesting. And, uh, I'll recommend this. And I didn't reread this in my, pre uh, preparation for this, uh, episode, but Alex Ross, uh, who's famously known as the classical music guy, for the New Yorker. You know, yeah. I think uh, Sasha Frere Jones or Khalifa Center, one of those guys does the pop stuff mostly. But, and Alex Ross does the classical. But Alex Ross did a an article when the Blood on the Tracks album box set came out a couple years back. It was like 2018 or 2019 or something. And it's Blood on the Tracks as released, but it also is gets into the New York recordings because the story with blood on the tracks is that he recorded a initial version of the record and all the songs in that in sessions in New York, uh, mm. with, uh, with a band, uh, there, some of it was solo and, uh, much better version of simple twist of fate. It's an incredible mm. version of S simple twist of fate that he did there. It's, it's way raw, if you can imagine that. It's way raw yeah. than the one oh. that made it on to um, that made it on to Blood on the Tracks. And I think only like three or four songs from the New York recordings made Blood on the Tracks. And it's a funny story there. And Alex Ross gets into it, where you know Dylan is getting divorced. He's still in New York, and I guess he wasn't satisfied with it, so he went back to Minnesota for a while, and he worked with a band there. And the story is that he's re-recording "Idiot Wind" in Minnesota. And this is when Dylan is in this period where every line has to end like this. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so there's an excerpt where Alex Ross is saying that Dylan is doing this. And uh, one of the takes was ruined because his bassist started laughing his ass off <laughs> and, and, and mocking Dylan for getting into this whole thing. Yeah. So 
so again, this is the be- this is not the rebirth of Dylan. It's the beginning of the rebirth of Dylan. Yes, where and that and that's enough of a reason to put on this list. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so he does this fluffy country rock record with Planet Waves, and he reminds himself, you know, I'm pretty good about this. And then he gets divorced. It's like not only a pretty good, but now I feel like making music that means something again. Number four reason why 1974 was really good and did not suck: the dawn of disco. Like I, I've said before, disco is not a bad word in this podcast. And if you think it is and you don't like disco, you can go fuck off. <laughs> okay. Yeah. First of all, disco is not a bad word again. And, 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 and I mean that. Now, while the style we definitely know as disco didn't hit the mainstream until 1975 with the likes of Donna Summer, Van McCoy, and KC and the Sunshine Band, the sounds and songs that, that lay the foundation for disco's breakthrough could be heard all through R&B radio and in dance clubs uh, throughout the U.S. in 1974. Um, you, you have sterling dance floor killers such as, you know, LaBelle or Patti LaBelle. The group was called LaBelle. LaBelle's Lady Marmalade, the Jackson 5's Dancing Machine, Carl Douglas's Kung Fu Fighting, Barry White's, my favorite Barry White song, Can't Get Enough of Your Love. Um, this Chris, what else do you have for 1974 proto disco? Yeah. 74 is one of the most fascinating years for black music in history. Uh, it's, it really is. I mean, it pre disco is almost, it's true, but it's almost insulting for mm. the, the sweep and so much fun. I mean, this was this, you know, just, so you're coming off that period of, uh, let's just put it, you know, all the sort of heroin commentary in the very early seventies of Curtis Mayfield yeah. and James Brown and yeah. Isaac Hayes and Sly and, 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 and all, all of these folks and sort of that funk. But now you're segueing into uh, basically a whole new generation. And you're talking like a lot of these folks that are big in 74, they're in their early twenties and just out of college, like literally the Commodores were Tuskegee and they started as yeah. I think a marching band. And so, you know, you get some of that. And so this is a year, to Marty's point, I mean, yeah, you you can call it the dawn of disco. Any year where MFSB and Love's theme are both both hits, yeah, that's a dawn of disco kind of year. Uh, And that brings up, think about some of the artists that really kind of break out in 74. The Commodores, uh, Machine Gun, uh, which is 73, but it it charted. Uh, Cool and the Gang. Uh, Hollywood Swinging, again, 73, but charted in 74. Now, Cool and the Gang has an album called Street Corner Symphony that is just, it's danceable as hell. Uh, it's its just, Cool and the Gang, basically, they were a whole, they're kind of like the Chicago of black people. Uh, because, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they, they really, uh, uh, they gestate from their horn section. And so it's yeah. this fabulous uh, horn stuff coming out. And all these horn intros, but it's it's very cinematic. Uh, the the best song on it, well, there's Street Corner Symphony, which is just wonderful. I mean, you you can't get any more disco than that. It's it's right there with MFSB. If you were to have a theme song for disco, it'd be right there. Uh, so you've got that. Uh, you've got other things too. Uh, George McRae had Rock You Baby, which was mm. a, a number one hit that year. Uh, KC of KC and the Sunshine Band fame wrote that song. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so there's that you, again, you've got Barry white, you've got the OJs, uh, that had a good year. I mean, for the love of money was a charter on that. Uh, you've got, uh, 
Gamble and Huff, uh, they they had a huge year. Gamble and Huff, mm-hmm. uh, they're the, really the bridge between that uh, late se- late 60s, early 70s soul and disco with their stuff. Yeah. Again, MFSB, Thrill of Money. Right. There were a few other. They had like five top 10 hits that year that they produced. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, you know, the sound of Philly. Uh, was was their right. was their thing, and so so they're all, it's just all over the place, and, and there's just so many influences. There's the jazz, there's the the the, the, the strings and the gospel, uh, even a little bit of country music because of a lot of the mm-hmm. a lot of those early songs have that twangy guitar. So we go from the euphoria of the beginnings of disco to the depression and the darkness and the down and the dumps of Neil Young's dark period, Chris. <laughs> okay, I get. I guess I'm, I'm quote unquote. I'm taking the lead on this one, even though I did all the talking on number four. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. This is we're getting into Neil Young, and uh, this is Neil Young in his most fascinating period, and maybe his most important year if you think about it, because you know the famous story. Seventy two, seventy one, seventy two. He has after the gold rush and harvest, which make him a huge star. Make him make possibly the biggest star in America, uh, yeah. rock, uh, star with, you know, heart of gold and old man and all that stuff. And then during that year, or as that year starting his guitarist and best friend, Danny Witten dies of a heroin overdose. His marriage is sort of on the rocks and he's getting tired of LA and he's just in a drug induced depression and haze and he's very embittered. And so then, he, but he also is at his most flourishing creatively. And it's kind of hard to believe that he had this period between 1973 and 1977 where I swear he's still releasing stuff that he wrote during that year, like here, 45 years later. Uh, It's kind of amazing. And so he releases on the beach, which is my favorite Neil Young record. uh, And objectively I think belongs in the top 100, maybe top 50. I can make an argument for top 10 greatest albums ever made. And so, Neil, this is an L.A. record. It's also an existential record. It's, it's interesting because it's, it's one part angry. It's one part drunk uh, and bitter. But it's also got some really um, soulful stuff in it. There's almost like a little bit of hope uh, uh, that shows up in it in a weird kind of way, in a dark kind of way. It's Neil shedding his his one skin for another, and it's a pivot point. Like you know, this is kind of a theme of this uh, of, of this list. Is it's a pivot point yeah. for a lot of these artists. Exactly. Yeah. And um, you know, one of my favorite lyrics by anybody of all time is at the end of his song uh, "Motion Pictures," uh, which mm. is towards the end of uh, of uh, of on the beach, and has this wonderful dobro part by Ben Keith. Uh, but if the lyric is all those people think they've got it made, but I wouldn't buy, sell, borrow, or trade anything (laughs) they have to be like one of them. I'd rather start all over again. Uh, I have used that lyric to define points in my life at least three times. Uh, and so there's a transcendence there. So I know, I know I'm talking personally, but just culturally. So this, you know, starts this period where he has, on the beach. And then he makes one of his most important decisions of his career. He's, he's got a bunch of friends over at his place 
and they're all drinking and doing drugs or whatever. And he says, Oh, I want to play you this, this album that I want to release. And it's homegrown, which didn't come out officially until last year as part of his archives project. But you know, that's got, you know, star of Bethlehem and, uh, a bunch of, you know, the original version of homegrown, which is way better than the one that made it on America's stars and bars. It's got love as a rose and it's this, you know, commercial, you know, sort of beautiful country-ish record. Uh, and then I guess his friends were like, well, what's on the B side? And the B side was tonight's the night. Oh, uh, and they all said, Oh, you know, th- that's what you should release. I mean, obviously it's a bunch of guys like ripped on out of their minds on a soundstage like way out of tune, but it's turns out to be uh, another one of the great top 100 albums ever made. And my favorite Neil Young album is that one. Yeah. My second favorite uh, album. Yeah. And so, and then Zuma came out after that and then eventually gets a rest never sleeps. And it's just this creative balloon. And uh, Neil is one of the singular uh, geniuses of this year. And it, it, to steal a John Phillips line, this is the epitome of turning tragedy into publishing. Uh, yeah. And just coming up with all this extraordinary stuff. And, yeah, uh, on the beach is probably best known for its trilogy of revolution blues, vampire blues, and ambulance blues. Yeah, but even the title track is a blues song, and it's you know it got that famous imagery of uh, I'm on the radio interview, sitting at the mic alone. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is just a really great existential, you know, sort of you know, yeah, we, we, you know, the world is turned. You know, yeah, it's just it's yeah. really amazing stuff. So, uh, thank you, Neil, for being that far. Uh, out of touch with Los Angeles that you came up with that record. May, may and also, Go ahead. Also around this time, like uh, in, well, eight, at this time, 74, this is when Nixon uh, stepped down from the White House because Correct. of the, of the Watergate scandal around this time, Neil Young wrote a song called campaigner. Yep. Uh, where the chorus is like a, you know, he, in, in, in a mocking ironic tone, even Richard Nixon has got soul. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of uh, that's a good point, Arturo, because in uh, August of 74, Nixon resigned uh, after you know they released the, the tapes that caught him uh, obstruct, you know, basically ordering the CIA to fuck with the FBI. Um, yeah. And so it becomes a, an interesting year for that generation of, of uh, rockers because it kind of informs the stuff between Vietnam and Nixon. And a lot of the stuff that was going on in the country, it becomes a sort of defining cultural thing that uh, for years afterward uh, showed up in a lot of uh, a lot of satire and a lot of good uh, rock, you know, the Warren Zevon kind of stuff, you know, like, like you know, there's Nixon kind of stuff that running through some of these artists uh, stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, sure. Neil, Neil made a, uh, a contribution to that. All right. We move on to. Re- and we're getting almost, almost done. Reason number two why 1974 did not suck. And this is the dawn of another era. And this is the dawn of New York's CBGB's punk and new wave scene, which would have ripple effects uh, throughout not just the music industry, but through pop culture. Now, let's point by point what was going on in New York in the, in the Lower East Side at this time. Patti Smith and by extension, the Patti Smith group were in full swing. Most of the songs that would make up her transcendent 1975 debut horses were already being played live in 74. Imagine being in a club show, watching the Patti Smith group perform songs. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. That must've been something, you know, television as well 
were already playing in 74. Now, several of the songs that would make up their mass that would make up their massively important and influential album from 1977, Marquee Moon, were already being played and honed as far back as 74. Um, both the Ramones and Blondie formed in 1974. And while these bands were at their incubation phase at this point, from a symbolic and historical standpoint, it further bolsters our point that 74 was by no means shit. However, what I want to focus on is the debut single by Patti Smith, released in late 1974 on an independent label called Mare Records or Mer Records. I'm not sure about the pronunciation. Essentially, it's the first shot fired to the world by the New York CBGB scene. That alone is pretty important and historical. But the fact that it's a stunning single and one of the greatest pure rock moments of 1974 is worth mentioning. The name of this single is Hey Joe. And yes, it's a, it's a cover of, of the old folk song by California folk singer Billy Roberts i.e. he registered the copyright for it back in 1962, so he may not have written it. But anyway, <laughs> he copyrighted it. And it was first covered by the L.A. garage back, garage rock band called The Leaves in 1965. And then, much more famously, of course, by Jimi Hendrix in late 1966, and later included on his monumental 1967 debut album, Are You Experienced?, However, being an aspiring poet herself and hardcore Arthur Rambeau fan, Smith thought of the at-the-time radical idea of pasting an original poem of hers as a spoken word piece right at the beginning of the song. And it's one of the most chilling intros or any kind of beginnings you'll hear in a rock or pop song, okay? But instead of me telling it to you, Let's have Patty herself take it away. Honey, the way you play guitar makes me feel so, makes me feel so masochistic. The way you go down low, deep into the neck, and I would do anything, and I would do anything. And Patty Hurst, you standing there in front of the Simonese Liberation Army flag with your legs spread. I was wondering, were you getting it every night from a black revolutionary man and his women, or were you really dead? And now that you are on the run, what goes on in your mind? Your sister, they sit by the window. You know, your mama does a sit and cry. And your daddy, well, you know what your daddy said, Patty. You know what your daddy said, Patty? He said, he said, he said, well, 60 days ago, she was such a lovely child. Now here she is with a gun in her hand. Thank you, Patty. Wow. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, tell us how you really feel about Patty Hearst. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, this song that is ostensibly about a guy who becomes an on-the-run outlaw for killing a woman who cheated on him is given resonating weight when juxtaposed with the story of Patty Hearst. Now, for those who don't know the story, back in early 1974, Hearst, the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst, the media czar of a newspaper conglomerate and patriarch of what was, at the time, one of America's richest and most politically influential families, she was kidnapped, allegedly, by the quote-unquote Symbionese Liberation Army for ransom. 
Now, the Symbionese Liberation Army were supposedly a far-left revolutionary political group that essentially devolved into a crime organization depending on bank robbery and kidnapping in order to make money. Uh, there are two stories coming out of this that you can believe. <laughs> you, can believe you can believe that the SLA brainwashed Patty Hearst into joining their group, as Hearst claimed happened, and as a result went on criminal sprees with them until they were all arrested. You can also believe that she joined the group out of her own volition and joined them in their criminal endeavors as a way of rebelling against the strict conservative conformity of her rich family. Which one was she sleeping with? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, the slightly cynical young punk in Patty Smith believed or wanted to believe the latter and crafted a rather haunting ode to crime as a way of letting go of the shackles of society. Just as Joe, in the original song, effect, uh, effectively ostracized or liberated himself from the civilized world by committing crime, Patty Hearst did the same in regard to her constricted aristocratic upbringing. It's an ingenious juxtaposition that hasn't aged a bit in how bold and actually disturbing it is. Uh, musically, it rises from a plaintive piano ballad and morphs into this dervish whirlwind as the basic piano chords get repeated with increased intensity and then dissonant guitar, a dissonant guitar runs up and down the fret, creating this manic texture. And Smith herself transitions from singing the basic lyrics of the song to embodying Patty Hearst herself and singing in her character and riffs spoken word style about how free she feels and how she'll never be anyone's patsy ever again. Um, the result is spellbinding. It's chilling. Like I said, disturbing. And it's also emotionally riveting. I mean, one actually, you actually feel sympathy for Patty Hearst in this song or better yet, the Hearst character that Smith created. This track alone embodies the revolutionary, incendiary, and highly original um, New York punk rock scene that would explode in a couple of years. Chris, <laughs> yeah, what do you think? No, I. It's it's interesting. Uh, for for what it's worth, uh, Arturo played uh, that. We did not download that illegally, or we're not. Uh, uh, we we. I don't think if you just play something from speakers, we, we need to worry about licensing. So on that note, I hope not. No, I hope not. No, 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 no. Uh, yeah, I, I'm an attorney, by the way, so I think I know what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, it it really is. I mean, like I said, there's that bubbling New York thing, and like you said, this is the forerunners uh, for that scene. And obviously, Patty Smith was pretty much the first one out of the gate of that bunch. Yeah. And then uh, you, you get to the point where you have Blondie and Talking Heads towards the end of it. Uh, very important uh, period and really defining uh, sort of like white uh, art, artish hard rock in the, in the 70s. Like hard rock is basically the dominant uh, story of the 70s, but there's like yeah. many layers of it. And then so you've got this this art school uh, uh, punk ass kid thing in New York, this uh, this uh, white bread rebellion in a lot of ways, even the Ramones were kind of a shtick, um, wonderful shtick. And they were, uh, uh Joey Ramone, well, the, as, as performers, they were, they were just genius. Uh, but 
Well, looking at that, I, it's just dawning on me as we're doing this episode. What a year. I mean, there's just so, yeah. so much depth and so much stuff starting, so much stuff beginning, so much stuff pivoting uh, th- this year that, um, man, uh, thank you, Rick Simmons. And, and thank you, Todd in the shadows, because this is our best episode by far. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is, this is really just a fascinating uh, run through this. And so, you know, uh, Art and I both lived in New York for years. And, uh, and so to embrace the beginning of this down in the village, uh, really is, is, uh, makes me, puts me in a reverent mood. Yeah. And we're not even into the number one reason why 1974 did not suck. Chris, what is that reason? Uh, speaking of reverence, uh, <laughs> you know, we put this number one for a reason. Well, for me, it it makes perfect sense because there's a sense of nostalgia. Um, I was turned on to this record in late 1998. Um, we're talking about Richard and Linda Thompson. Uh, Richard Thompson is is probably the most tragically under uh, sold. Uh, under promoted appreciated and underappreciated or just he's never been quote unquote successful. Uh, he's been able to, you know, make a living as a performer and he's got uh, his admirers and all of that. But I don't understand how this guy hasn't been a huge star because he's one of the few guys in rock and roll. That's a quadruple threat. Amazing yeah. guitar player, amazing lyricist, uh, amazing singer and amazing songwriter. Uh, highly, he, highly original guitar player. Yes. Very yes. distinctive guitar. Nobody sounds like him. Yeah. It's this combination of uh, country and folk and just really, there's a lot of Irishness going on there, obviously. Uh, yeah. Even though he, he's British, right? I mean, or he's English. He's, he's, he is English. He is English. Yes, yes. But there's a lot of this sort of Irish, you know, uh, Legion Leaf kind of stuff, which, you know, obviously he founded for Fairport Convention. Scottish, so, really. A lot of Scottish, too. Yes. He knows his Scottish yes. folk as well. Yes. Know? And so in 1974, uh, this is his first album with his new wife, Linda, uh, who he had married in 72. She's an astonishingly great singer. Uh, yeah. can interpret anything with this this resonant, yeah. deep, rich, beautiful voice. And yeah. so he found the perfect interpreter of his ideas and was really his muse. Uh, and yeah. Thompson also had a gift for writing for a female singer, as it turns yeah. out. And so I say it's right because it, there's a time and a place. It was just as I was moving to New York. And just as my music vocabulary and my music knowledge was expanding and this record comes up. And I introduced you to this album. Yeah, I, I, I did. And, uh, uh, no, I, I did. I introduced yeah, I, you. Yes, to- I, I know. I know. And it's funny because I, I was starting a job with addicted to noise at this time and they flew me out to San Francisco and, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it publicly. I stole, uh, Michael Goldberg's copy of, I want to, uh, see the bright lights uh, tonight from his uh, CD library in the addicted to noise <laughs> office with his, you know, his 5,000 CDs or whatever. And I, I, I stole yeah. it. Uh, that's how much I like this record. Now about the record itself. Uh, he, he's a folk rock genius and it's not like big star where big star had their grand unveiling in the nineties. Richard Thompson just, he stayed just sort of low profile. 
and you really have to be a student of rock history and of the 60s and 70s and really be a guitar aficionado to find Thompson. And in a way, I think Thompson's most famous stuff is the score to Grizzly Man, the uh, the amazing Werner yeah. Herzog uh, yeah. uh, thing about the guy that uh, went and lived with the bears in Alaska and then got eaten by one. Uh, yep. <laughs> uh, and so not to ramble here, but... Uh, here I can just cover. Uh, I want to see. Uh, I want to uh, see the bright lights tonight. Uh, really, uh, really this way. Uh, they sequenced the songs "Withered" and "Died," and I want to see the bright lights tonight to follow one another. Yeah, I'll admit I listened to "Withered and Died" uh, earlier uh, in the day that we're recording this. Immediately cried. I think it was more for nostalgic reasons than the song. It's a gorgeous song. But it's this, um, it's this tune about wanting to be hopeful, but then being abandoned and you know being stuck in a place, being lonely and abandoned. And so uh, it's got this lyric in it, and it's this wonderful, swaying, uh, beautiful ballad uh, with you know extraordinary playing in it. And the singing is some of the best singing ever committed to record, but. It's got yeah. this lyric in it that says, if I was a butterfly, live for a day, I could be free just blowing away. This cruel country has driven me down. Tease me and lied, tease me and lied. I've only sad stories to tell to this town. My dreams have withered and died. And so you see this, uh, this uh, almost this very raw, very humanistic journey from the, the dreams and the longing. And, so, and, that, and that's the thing. There's this morosity or morosity, if that's a word, to this record. But there's also a yeah. celebratory nature. And it, and, yeah. and it mixes both in a lot of it's songs. A, it's, 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 it's a juxtaposition, really. Yeah, it, re it really is. But it, it works in both senses. And then, so that's the third song on the record. The fourth song on the record is I Want to See the Bright Lights Tonight, which is this wonderful uh, celebration of... Uh, the week has sucked and I want to go out and have fun and, and, and just, uh, you know, get, get it all off my shoulders. And it's, there's a transcendence to it. It's a very, uh, up, uh, uppity, you know, very happy, pleasant, uh, song with this great horn arrangement, you know, yes, uh, Richard Thompson dabbled in horns as well. And, uh, that has the lyric, a couple of drunken nights rolling on the floor is just the kind of mess I'm looking for. <laughs> I'm going to dream till Monday comes in sight. I want to see the bright lights tonight. Uh, and so think about it. Those two songs. It's, back it's, 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 it's basically the romantic version of ACDC. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ba yeah. Basically speaking, of, speaking of drinking and, and, and fucking, uh, this is in, in the Richard Thompson form. And so yeah. there's really an intimacy here that it's Linda Thompson as the voice of Richard Thompson's soul that I'm sure she had some influence on. Right. And they really had a fascinating run because eight years later, if this is a great love record to the English life and yeah. to, you know, the hardships and, and, uh, and celebrations of English and Irish life, then 1982 is the other side that, that, that I should have the light might actually be number two in the divorce canon yep. <laughs> and, and the breakup <laughs> canon. And yep, so, yep. You know, walking on, so you have withered and died and walking on a wire, which are two of my favorite all time yeah. female vocals. And they come from Richard Thompson's right. mind. It's from Richard Thompson's yeah. mind to her voice. <laughs>
Talking about uh, a guy who's a rock legend in our minds and should be in other people's minds, who's uh, much underappreciated. If it's possible, the next person we're going to talk about is even more underappreciated than Richard Thompson. And this will kick off our vault recommendations. Chris, are you ready for this one? Uh, I am. Uh, this, this is an interesting one, actually. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. 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 Um, this person, like I said, Richard Thompson, the, probably the most underappreciated, underrated rock figure of all time. This guy's maybe even more underappreciated than him. And I'm talking about no other. <laughs> you see what I did there? there no other than no other than Gene Clark and his album from 1974, No Other. Now, released in 1974, this was Clark's magnum opus. Clark was one of the founding members of the Birds, who, if listeners don't know and should know, were, and I guess still are, one of the 10 greatest, most important and influential American bands of all time. Clark was in the band for their first two albums, both from 1965, Mr. Tambourine Man and Turn, Turn, Turn. He played some guitar, but mainly he was, along with Roger McGuinn, one of the two lead singers and the only member of the band at the time who actually wrote songs. In fact, being the only member of the band with, with his own publishing deal was a great source of internal strife and jealousy within the band. It was one of the reasons he left the band in the early part of 66, 1966, along with his reluctance to tour because of his fear of flying, which is ironic because he was in a band called The Birds. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Um, uh, this act, this was, this little irony was actually referenced in a documentary made in 2013, very good documentary called, uh, the bird who flew alone, the triumphs and tragedy of Gene Clark. Great movie. Check it out if you can. Anyway, his post birds career was marked by quality albums and recordings that failed to make a commercial dent or even gather much industry interest. He recorded an acetate of stunning, poetic, Dylan-level folk rock songs called Gene Clark Sings for You in 1967 that he shopped around record labels for other singers and artists to cover. It wasn't picked up by a single record label. That same year, he collaborated with a folk group called the Gosden Brothers and actually had the album released, but to zero reaction. Another collaboration with bluegrass artist Doug Dillard called The Fantastic Expedition of Dillard and Clark was released in 1968, again, to very little fanfare. In 1971, he put out one of the most gorgeous collections of country and soul-inflected folk rock anyone has ever recorded called First Light, an album that stands comfortably among, and in some cases even surpasses, the output of contemporaries such as Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, James Taylor, and even the great Neil Young. It needs to be noted that a big reason for Clark's inability to catch a break was his alcoholism and cocaine addiction, which later on became a crack addiction in the 1980s. He had that classic trait that is common with most addicts in that he was a self-saboteur. <laughs> he just could not get out of his own way. 
Um, whenever something would go right for him and some positive momentum was being built, he would do something to fuck it up and tear it down. Uh, he burned a lot of personal bridges with producers, record label honchos, A&R men, and even fellow musicians and artists. This brings us to 1974. Um, the previous year, the five original members of the Birds reunited for an album that, while not selling a lot of copies, impressed a lot of record industry insiders, particularly because of Gene Clark's contributions, which were uh, singing lead on two original songs and singing lead on two Neil Young covers, oddly enough. Um, David Geffen was impressed enough to assign him to a one-album deal on Asylum Records. Now, in several interviews Clark gave throughout the 70s and into the 1980s, he consistently maintained that at around the time of no other, the two albums he was listening to the most was Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions and the Rolling Stones' Goat's Head Soup. Uh, the former, the Stones album, no, sorry, the, 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 the Wonder album, the former, was a milestone in R&B soul music with its distillation of funk and gospel via synthesizer-based arrangements. And the latter, the Stones album, was a subtle departure from the Stones' usual sound in that it incorporated, you know, majestic, sweeping, Van Morrison-esque Celtic soul. Now, those influences are clearly apparent on no other. It's the most ambitious and dense-sounding record Clark ever made, and arguably superior to most of the Birds' weighty catalog. And that's saying something. Uh, country rock and gospel come together with really strong R&B soul underpinnings and slightly subtly psychedelic guitar and synthesizer arrangements, nothing too over the top, right? And the result is, as I referenced earlier with Van Morrison, this majestic sweep of cosmic choir country gospel rock. That's basically what it is. It's cosmic choir country gospel rock. The songs Clark wrote for the album are big and melodic enough to match the epic sound of the music. Lyrically, the main theme of the album is the pitfalls of living a life of excess decadence, which makes sense because Clark's personal life was in constant turmoil due to the corrosive effects that his addictions had on his marriage and family. It informed the existential angst and uh, philosophical nature of the, of the lyrics and the music. Ironically, he was still with his wife and kids and sober all throughout the writing and recording of the album. It's after this album where he really, really fell off the wagon hard. So as you can imagine, something that sounded uh, so big and dense as this album had a huge recording cost of $100,000, which was a hell of a lot back then, you know. And uh, David Geffen was then disappointed that there weren't any obvious hit singles and that there were only eight songs on the album. <laughs> like, <laughs> only eight songs for 100000 bucks? Are you kidding me? You know, that kind of attitude. <laughs> <laughs> Albeit eight superb songs, right? So Asylum didn't put any real promotion behind the record. It peaked only at number 144 on the Billboard charts. And by 1976, it was deleted from Asylum's catalog. It does some a neat trick because you, you you start the record and it's got this very country rock yeah. uh, vibe and in, in at the beginning, but then it just turns into this sort of exploration of like this quasi. Uh, it's really a forerunner to the stuff that started to come out in '75 California. You know, it's a precursor to Buckingham Mix, uh, and 
strangely enough, uh, because I go backwards, uh, you know, so I, in terms of the order, when I hear this album, which, you know, I became familiar with after this, I hear a lot of Dennis Wilson's Pacific Ocean Blue. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so it's just kind of this interesting thing. But Gene Clark is the lost bird, uh, which is unfair. Uh, because as Arturo said, the first two years, I mean, he's basically the primary songwriter. I mean, he wrote eight miles uh, high. Um, he, he, he wrote most of it. McGuinn wrote yeah. part of it. Yeah. 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 But he wrote, yeah, but he wrote the best, the, basically the, the stuff that they, you know, became famous for in those first couple yeah. of years, uh, was yeah. all that. But at the same time, you know, there was always the fact that he was shy and retiring and he had that anxiety uh, problem. And so he always kind of looked like he was the fourth guy. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Crosby went on and had his success, you know, McGuinn, you know, was an asshole and kind of was self-styled and, you know, like, I mean, McGuinn was such an asshole that, uh, you remember like uh, sweetheart of the rodeo that I don't know what it was, but I think he forced the issue that uh, Graham Parsons vocals got swept off and Roger McGuinn's got swept in, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So Clark, you know, again, he's this enigmatic guy who had all these anxieties and, uh, was retiring and he had those addictions. And so he goes swinging for the fences. He spends all of David Geffen's money and yeah. <laughs> Geffen was so pissed. He didn't promote the record. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it literally sold nothing. And it, it literally got removed from the catalog two years later. Only um, eight songs for a hundred thousand bucks. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And you know, <laughs> there's a, a legend that the two of them got into a fist fight at a party or something, uh, which turned out not to be true, but yeah. Yeah, but, you know, like I said, Clark, uh, fascinating character, really talented musician, songwriter, producer, uh, probably genius level. But, you know, he's, he's the classic tortured artist who, yeah. you, know, he, you know, dead by 46. He's like uh, he's like Graham Parsons on like 78, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah, as opposed to 33. So yeah. what are you going to do? So, yeah. yep, that's Gene Clark. So, and, let's, so for the next Vault album, we're going to go on a high. And what is this yes. high? We're going to the opposite of no other. <laughs> yes, we're going to go the opposite of no other. This is uh, the Rolling Stones. It's only rock and roll, uh, which is probably the most under. So, you know, when people think of the Stones, they really don't consider this a classic. And which, they should. And they should. Because here, here's the thing with uh, with this. So this is their first album that they don't make with Jimmy Miller. The, yeah. the five albums before this are all produced by Jimmy Miller. Obviously, some of the greatest records ever made and are one of the great four album streaks in the history of rock is before this. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a great six album streak. You know, Goat's Head Soup is another one of those underrated records. But this one, so J Jimmy Miller is out of the picture. So <laughs> Mick Taylor is halfway gone yeah. uh, on heroin. And yeah. he's also embittered because he thinks that Jagger's like stealing songwriting credits from him. And so he's only on a few parts of the record too. Uh, and so out of this, so Jagger and Richard decided, well, we're going to produce our own records. And what they did is they came up with the blueprint literally for every album they did afterwards. Yeah. Uh, heavy on the rhythm guitars, the, the danceable, uh, over the top Rolling Stones, uh, the, uh, the almost parody singing, the, uh, the, the 
oh, you know, the, the, the growling singing yeah. of, of Jagger. So yeah. that whole formula they invented with this record. And it, it was one of the great repeatable processes in rock and roll history. Yep. Only because in this first iteration, it is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, and just, you know, with, with between the riffing and, you know, some of the, uh, the interchange and the sexual energy of it. Uh, one of the great Motown covers of all time is on that yep. with Ain't Too Proud to Beg. Yeah. Uh, my personal one of my personal favorite shower dance songs is <laughs> on it dance little sister yep yeah well, that's, that's one of my one of my 10 favorite stone songs ever oh <laughs> i mean just just awesome like like just awesomely pumped up dance stuff and so to this, to this day i don't know what he's saying and this is all, all i get is the the bridge jump back to africa those are the only words that i can understand in that song it's just such a fun uh, romp of a record. Uh, Mick Taylor does have his moment, like in all of his record, all of his records, he gets that sort of jazzy, uh, you know, sort of uh, musician-y thing. And so he's yeah. got that uh, in there. And uh, it's the Glimmer Twins template, which they didn't do as well until 1994. And it took Don Was to get them back there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, which is this sort of dancey, growling singing uh almost they almost started to get creepy old man even then and they're what like 32 33 when they're doing yeah. this record yeah uh, and it's also ron wood's debut uh because uh it's only rock and roll was actually recorded in i think it's either ian hunter or rod woods ron woods bass basement right and uh ron wood plays the acoustic guitar on it's only rock and roll so that was his introduction to the stones and you know, legend has it that uh, uh, after that record came out, uh, the Stones are at some party with a whole bunch of London musicians and Mick Taylor just kind of casually comes up to Jagger and says, by the way, I'm, I'm quitting the band. And uh, so, yeah, so I'm out and leaves there. And so Jagger shook and they just happened to be drinking with Ron Wood. And I think like, Jagger or Richard uh, look over at Ron Wood and say, hey, you want to be in the band? And Ron was like, <laughs> yeah, sure, man. <laughs> yeah, and so like literally, so you know, uh, they get hit with this surprise firing, and they hired Ron Wood like ten minutes later. So, uh, great, great record, uh, just so much fun, and just just such a great pop record. It it has nothing weighty to it. It's not a a tour of Americana, or it has none of the darkness of Let It Bleed. It's yeah. just it's just those guys jamming out, and it's. Even now, like they did the song Gloom and Doom a few years ago, and even the stuff they've been doing lately, it's the same, it's the same shtick, just done way worse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a, a testament to like, you know, when you're 70 something years old, yes, you can be too old to rock out. <laughs> yeah, hence, hence why they're in that pasture with the other old cows. Exactly. This has been a, a quite, quite an episode. Um, I, I love this episode actually. 1974. Now it's I'm going to swim in uh, uh, in uh, this uh, this year for a while. Uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, visit us at, on Twitter uh, at curmudgeonpod. Uh, Patreon. Uh, we have some catching up to do, but you can find our our uh, uh, show notes up there and and some sweeteners too uh we're in the middle of producing a transcript of our last record with mike eisenstein on covid uh and uh, live music post covid so 
Uh, Artie, any final thoughts? No. Look forward to the next episode. We've been in a lot of agreement the last few episodes. We're going to start to disagree a lot the next one. Yes, and and, and that is and that is a good teaser uh, <laughs> to leave y'all on. The Curmudgeon Rock Report will keep on rocking if you do. Catch us where you catch all the podcasts. We know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeonrock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude. Stay crude. Stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.